Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Dude, I am doing absolutely fantastic. Uh, we had Ethan Vera on the show to talk about Bitcoin mining, mining in general, and kind of the the growth of the crypto consensus uh, security industry in general. I don't know what the best way to talk about it. We talked about a ton of stuff. Uh, it was really focused on the macroeconomic trends behind uh, Bitcoin mining, cryptocurrency mining. Uh, but we also talked about staking. We also talked about altcoin mining. Uh, we talked about hash rate, uh, hash rate exchanges. Uh, like this was an absolutely monster episode with Ethan, and I'm really glad that he came on. Uh, he has a ton of ton of knowledge. Yeah, I came into the crypto world via mining, so I kind of always have a little bit of a soft spot for this topic. It, it, it fascinates me. It's one of those ways where just like the emergence of like non-sovereign digital um, digital money on the internet actually comes and impacts the real world in ways that are separate from the fact that it's money, right? It starts to impact like the energy markets. Uh, global geopolitics comes into play between like who can manufacture the the things that make these things secure. There's a lot of just um, you know second and third order effects, which are really funny to fun to talk about. Um, uh, the uh, environment and and the energy being burned is always also one of those topics as well. And we dip into all of these topics with Ethan. So fascinating episode. Uh, Ethan's a, a great speaker, really eloquent and definitely knows his stuff. So we're a really good guest to uh, be able to talk about some of these things. Yeah. And before we get into the episode, I uh, want to do a quick plug. POV Crypto currently does not have a sponsor. And for anyone who's listening to this podcast, you know that we give the best testimonial ad reads out there. Uh, we really like to get into our sponsors tech or service and get our hands dirty and try it out and uh, pitch it to you guys if we think it's great. So uh, if you have a great Bitcoin, Ethereum or crypto product out there and you want to reach a very complex uh, and very well-informed group of inside listeners, uh, make sure to holler at either David or myself on Twitter uh, or ping the show through DMs. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways to get in touch with us. So, uh, you know, just shout and we much appreciate it. POV crypto is at the M zero of the crypto universe. Uh, our, our content is pretty nuanced and pretty niche. Uh, and that's because the extremely nuanced and niche people uh, listen to us. And, and those people are the people that everyone else listens to. So we're at the bottom of the stack. So the, you get a lot of bang for your buck by advertising on POV. So that's for sure. No more of that. Let's get into the interview. Without further ado, Ethan Vera. What is up, everyone? This is CK here, as always, with David Hoffman, Trustless State. Today, we are joined for the third night in a row with a fantastic guest on POV Crypto. This time, it is uh, the CTO of Luxor Tech. Uh, Ethan Vera. Uh, Ethan, welcome to POV Crypto. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me on. Quick uh, correction there to uh, CFO. I'm, I'm not that smart. Uh, uh, do, uh, who's the CTO? Is that, um, that's, is that uh, uh, Ed? Yeah, Eddie Wang, uh, my co-founder, who's previously worked at uh, Saya and MyEtherWallet. So much smarter guy than me. Uh, I don't want to set the bar too high here. 
Okay, no, my my bad on that. I uh, should have got that corrected before uh, before going live. But yeah, Ethan wanted to get you on the podcast. You've been on several Bitcoin Magazine shows to uh, break down what is happening in the mining environment. Uh, Luxor offers Bitcoin mining as well as is a mining pool, and it offers Bitcoin mining as well as a ton of other altcoin mining. And you guys are doing a lot of like creative stuff with data too. Uh, so you're like a perfect guest to kind of do this like overarching mining update. Um, but before we get into it, why don't you kind of talk a little bit about yourself and uh, in Luxor? For sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm the co-founder of Luxor. Uh, we, we started the company about three years ago. We were uh, still in college at the time and really fascinated by the idea of taking raw compute power and uh, building consensus on the network and uh, getting paid as a result essentially kind of the, the future federal bankers of a, a more just system. So we started building just that, which is mining pools. Um, and over the past uh, two and a half years, we've just continued to build out our mining pool offering. Uh, we recently launched a new data website for everything mining related called Hashrate Index. So it, it has data stats like uh, we track historical rig prices. So we scrape a bunch of ASIC prices over time, uh, bucket it, aggregate the data and then display it in a clear way. Uh, we also track the value of hash rate over time and uh, pretty much anything mining related. Uh, the project was really uh, customer and, and miner driven. So everything we build is uh, to help miners out. So if anyone has any uh, data they wanna see related to the mining industry, just shoot me a message and, and we'll try and add it. Um, I kind of went around there my background, but uh, before mining and crypto, I was in financial services. So. Uh, worked at Goldman Sachs, uh, doing some cross-border M&A. Uh, was in San Francisco for a bit and then Hong Kong uh, after that. And yeah, been in the mining space for about three years now. So can you kind of tell us, um, how long have you been with the company? We started the company in August 2017. Okay. Um, and then I, I joined a couple months after software development started, uh, right before the launch of our, our first product. So I guess we're coming up on three years now. Okay, so the launch of that first product, and then I'm assuming that new products have come down the line. Can you kind of tell us about that process of like, how did you discover this first product? Why did you think the market needed market needed it? And then the, the products that came after that, how did you discover that the market needed those? And also, what are those products? The, the first product that we uh, built was a mining pool for Siacoin, uh, the decentralized cloud storage uh, provider, uh, David Vork and team. Uh, essentially, we looked at the the ecosystem and realized there was only one mining pool at the time, or one major mining pool, uh, which isn't uh, you know very beneficial to a healthy ecosystem where it's supposed to be decentralized. So we figured, hey, we can build a, a secondary mining pool, uh, spread out the hash rate a bit, and improve the overall security and decentralization of that network. And we got great feedback from it. Uh, a lot of miners jumped over. Uh, we tried to create a really good user experience, and with the miners kind of. Um, you know, with their mindset um, and, and built it that way. So we just continued to build out pools that our miners wanted. Uh, we built Decred next. Uh, we eventually uh, got up to Bitcoin. It's kind of unintuitive, but you actually usually don't want to start with Bitcoin for a number of reasons. Uh, first is it's, uh, it requires a lot of uh, financial um, backing. So if you operate a paper share mining pool, you actually need quite a bit of liquidity to cover that mining uh, variance. And then also it's uh, less costly to make mistakes. We've made a ton of mistakes over the past two and a half years, uh, orphaned a ton of blocks, lost a lot of money, but 
luckily it's all been in altcoins so that we can take that learning and then go uh, to a bigger network. Um, so that's kind of more the historical business, but I think your question, like moving forward, what we really want to improve on is two things. One, the transparency of the industry. Um, and, and really that comes down to liquidating your hash rate. To date, most miners have had to sell directly to a mining pool, trust that they're getting a the right price. They could be potentially getting ripped off by the pool and getting shorted some change. Um, we want to create more transparent liquidation strategies so that hash rate uh, you know, is traded more in, in less of an opaque fashion. And then the second would be building uh, hedging tools for miners. Uh, right now, there's really no way for miners to hedge uh, their, their investment risk, which leads to an underinvestment in places like North America. So we want to build those tools that will help people hedge uh, their mining risk moving forward. So I, I want to get deeper into some of the stuff that you're building, but also want to recommend the interview that you did with Marty Bent on TFTC. You, I know you get into a lot of those details there. Um, want to instead jump and talk about some of these updates from, uh, you know, around the mining industry. The first thing that uh, you listed when I asked you what's happening uh, was Bitmain drama. Uh, the former king of ASICs uh, has had a wild few years. Uh, do you want to update us on what is happening with Bitmain? Bitmain is the new uh, Tiger King. You know, now that that shows run out, you can just uh, watch what's going over there between Jihan and McCree. Um, and it's kind of ironic too because uh, of the role they've played in so many forks over the history. <laughs> there we go. You're gonna have to swap that out for Jihan and McCree next uh, pod. Yeah, I should make one. I'll make. Yeah, one. it's That's uh, a good idea. It is ironic because of how many forks they've been a part of, um, and now essentially their company is forking itself. So Jihan uh, and McCree are the two uh, co-founders and kind of management of Bitmain. Uh, they've been battling it out for quite some time, uh, seizing the company from one another. And now it's been like a complete split where Jihan has uh, the chip relations with TSMC. He has a Malaysia subsidiary, uh, but he lost the manufacturing. And McCree owns the manufacturing in Shenzhen. So both of them now have parts of the business that are incomplete. So they're going to have to rush to rebuild the entire uh, supply chain or at least fill in the missing parts they don't have. Um, so shipping delays are expected. Uh, really, the, the future of Bitmain is uncertain. Uh, there's a lawsuit pending right now in the Cayman Islands uh, where the company's registered for control of the company. So uh, it's really just uncertain times there. So who wins as a result of this? I'm assuming bit, the answer is Bitmain competitors. Uh, who are those and who is really, is there anyone that is really uh, taking advantage of this uh, you know, chaos uh, from Bitmain? Definitely. Like, like you said, the competitors are the clear winners. Like what's, MicroBT, which creates the What's Miner, they've been having an unbelievable year and a half, uh, really good machines. A lot of people, uh, including Marty, uh, we were talking about last time on his podcast, think that the What's Miner M20S will be the new Bitmain S9. So I think MicroBT is in a really good position to become uh, the leading player in the ASIC manufacturing space. Uh, but the rest of the manufacturers also benefit. The other and a benefit from this is anyone who has already, any miner who's already at full capacity, they weren't planning on adding any new Bitmain machines anyways. So uh, all these uh, hardware delays will mean that less hash rates added to the network, difficulty increases less, and, and ultimately they mine more Bitcoin. So uh, there's quite a few winners uh, in this case. 
Uh, what about you jump the... in? Sorry, I was going to ask, um, uh, kind of on that point of uh, less new miners being added, I feel like a lot of people are learning a lot about the, the S9 and how well the S9 can kind of continue to be relevant in the Bitcoin mining sphere. Uh, can you give us an update on like, you know, how miners are using S9s and what is happening with like the massive bulk load of S9 miners that are already a part of the ecosystem? A lot of people thought that as soon as the halving happened, that everyone would just throw their S9s into the bottom of the ocean. But uh, that was far from the case. Uh, a lot of miners put them on the side of their uh, racks and, and stored them uh, for times like this, where uh, revenue per terahash is around 10 cents. And if you're a low cost operator, you can actually continue to run them. Uh, I think you need around right now, given the current climate around like two, two and a half cent power uh, for the S9 to be profitable. But I know many producers that are uh, still running them uh, below those rates. And so th there's a couple of things you can do there. Uh, one, you can install firmware. So something like Brains OS Plus uh, developed by the Brains team, uh, the founder of Slashpool. Um, they have uh, firmware that you can undervolt uh, the machines. So it reduces the amount of hash rate the machine produces, but it increases the efficiency. So you can actually run it more profitably. Um, the second is like innovative solutions, like what Steve Barber is doing at Upstream Data and many others are um, really capitalizing on very like low to like cheap either or free electricity that comes off of like flare gas sites. So uh, there's a lot of way these, these S9s are still being used to date. And I'd recommend it. no one ever throw out any machine because you never know when uh, that machines can become valuable again. It's always worth it just store it at the side of your, your facility. If you're gonna, if you plan to get rid of it for free, that is. So, what about the dichotomy between China and uh, U.S. mining or East versus West mining? So, Bitmain forking into two companies, which, if you combine them, are probably less effective than what what Bitmain once was. How does this? How does this impact the the, the global macro politics when it comes to, uh, you know, the the nationalization of Bitcoin mining? Um, and I heard you mentioned uh, burning uh, flare gas to burn uh, to get energy to uh, mine Bitcoin. And in my, in my history, I've actually worked on some some documentation for uh, projects in in America that were working on you know generating their own energy to mine their own Bitcoin. And I, I from, I've been out of the loop uh, for multiple years on this, but that's, there seemed to be like uh, a coming revolution of U.S. based energy efficient mining operations. Can you kind of talk about just the differences between China, US, Bitcoin mining, how the quote unquote collapse of Bitmain has impacted that and, and what the state of US Bitcoin mining is? China has long uh, dominated uh, mining as soon as ASICs came around uh, because they leveraged their uh, supply chains, cheap labor, and uh, the manufacturers being onshore there to start really building out. They also had quick, easy access to the Sichuan province, which has very cheap hydro uh, electricity, an abundance of power. So they got a head start in like 2016 and have never really uh, taken their foot off the gas. Um, it's just like a natural uh, part of mining really being a capitalist game where it'll flow to the cheapest producers. And uh, in the early years, that was China. Um, but I think there are some, some shifting tides here, uh, especially from China to the US. Uh, if I had to predict, uh, Texas is gonna become the next Szechuan within the next five to 10 years. So 
I think there's there's a few industry tailwinds there. Uh, Bitmain may be one of them, but I think more importantly is that we're starting to uncover uh, better energy infrastructure than uh, China. There's this common misunderstanding that China has way cheaper power than us, but it's not really true. They just had access to the cheap power very early versus us, we need to now uh, work to unlock it. So somewhere like Texas, you can actually get power under two cents uh, a kilowatt hour, which is uh, significantly cheaper than most areas of China. And so with the right uh, kind of players in the space and the capital being invested in there, I think we're going to start to see a large portion of that hash rate uh, shift over uh, to the U.S. So, you know, pretty bullish on that. Um, There's quite a few other industry trends. We could probably talk about this all day. Well, I mean, like, yes, Bitmain maybe uh, is a is a thorn in Chinese mining's uh, side, but at the same time, all the existing manufacturers are still based out of China as well. Um, like, is there any indication that like hash rate production is gonna start kind of coming out of different areas, or is it really just kind of bound to Chinese manufacturers using uh, TMM, uh, you know, Taiwanese semiconductors to to make these things? There's a few things to unpack here. I think a good first step would be if there is an onshore US-based manufacturer that partners with an existing player. So they don't need to necessarily build the whole supply chain themselves. But if we had uh, you know, a strong US player that partners with someone like MicroBT and assembles the machines in uh, the US, I think that's a, a, a good first step and probably more likely uh, than getting a, a manufacturer onshore right away. Uh, definitely long-term, uh, all the miners here are hoping that we can bring a manufacturer, but uh, it seems unlikely as of now just because of how good uh, Bitmain and What's Miner are at what they do. Uh, you know, as much as everyone hates Bitmain, uh, they're from an efficiency uh, standpoint and quality, they've made incredible uh, machines at low cost. So it's going to be hard, very hard for an American uh, company to like uh, compete with that, especially given the capital costs uh, in the US, labor costs, um, and, and just relationships already. So I'm not super bullish on an American manufacturer that owns the whole supply chain. Now, I know the guys at Layer One are, are trying to gain independence from it in a unique way. They're partnering with uh, a, a different uh, semiconductor player, and they're actually not going with the typical uh, standard form of a, a miner as Alex uh, from there one describes it, it's like a shoebox miner and he thinks that's cargo cult. So they're actually trying to design systems where you can put these chips directly into like a shipping container uh, full of immersion and, and just run like a giant uh, miner shipping container. So I'm curious to see how that works out, but that could be a way to bypass the existing supply chain. The last I heard about uh, U.S. manufacturing, um, some big players were uh, trying to get into the space um, and the names are going to escape me, but um, Samsung, I don't even know if is that even is close to being right or not, but um, that was Samsung, not, not even U.S. But there are some Western, uh, you know, big name companies who are looking to get into the space of manufacturing uh, chips to mine Bitcoin. Can you update, update, can you update us on the state of that? Yeah, I, I think Samsung and TSMC, uh, Samsung's based in Seoul and TSMC in Taipei, uh, I would consider them Western uh, companies. Uh, I think anything uh, east of China uh, is more aligned with the U.S. Uh, and the Western world. So I, I think it's fine that those uh, 
companies are based in uh, South, like Eastern Asia. Uh, I know TSMC and Samsung have both tried to onshore chip production in the U.S., and that would be great uh, because then uh, a manufacturer uh, could set up here and directly get chips from uh, another, you know, North American-based, I guess, uh, you know, subsidiary of of one of these larger companies. So. I think that could be positive. Um, we haven't heard too many recent like manufacturers try. I know uh, CK just talked to Zach from Obelisk the other day, who's now doing uh, uh, hardware wallets. Uh, Zach used to run a company called Obelisk. They actually shipped two successful ASICs uh, for Sci and Decred. So uh, there was a successful, um, or at least uh, you know they launched a ASIC manufacturer in the US, not for Bitcoin yet, but it was a, a positive uh, indicator that it can be done. Has the so, trade war between the, the Trump trade war between U.S. and China impacted anything related to Bitcoin mining? The tariffs have slowly been increasing. So now the tariffs are about 25% on equipment coming from China to the U.S. There's ways you can get around that. So uh, Bitmain has their subsidiary in, in Malaysia that they can ship out of. Uh, but that comes with quality concerns. Uh, there's also ways to get it into Canada and then probably to the U.S. as like a resale. Uh, but overall, it has impacted the CapEx, definitely. And I think, uh, if anything, it's going to benefit probably Canada a bit because uh, machines don't get taxed uh, or tariffs, sorry, um, on their way into Canada. So I think that'll be, you know, a headwind for U.S.-based mining. But at the end of the day, like, there's ways around it and it's not too big of a hit. Uh, really, the industry has shifted a lot from CapEx uh, focus to OpEx. So... Uh, these machines run for you know, three years, uh, the, the best ones do. So paying a little bit extra on CapEx isn't the end of the world if you can still be a very low cost operator and run it for you know extended period of time. So I'm interested to see how it plays out though, because I, I guess it depends how the election goes, but it could continue to escalate if Trump is reelected. Yeah, I'll be interested to see like if tariffs keep going up if there is a significant black market between uh canada and the u.s uh kind of like smuggling miners in and out uh that could be interesting to to watch play out um want to kind of uh talk to you about mining outside of bitcoin um luxor you guys obviously have a lot of altcoin uh mining pools and you guys you know bootstrapped yourself with altcoin mining i'm curious like what is the direction of like altcoin mining right now? And and as like a second part of this question is like, what is your thoughts on the staking environment and like proof of stake in general? Altcoin mining is definitely uh, dying off slowly here. Uh, you're seeing less and less proof of work um, projects being launched. So uh, I guess two years ago, the big ones or a year and a half were, were Grin and Beam. Those were some big proof of work projects coming out. And then um, earlier this year was uh, Nervos um, and Handshake. And so it seems like every year there's like a couple being added, but just not as many as there used to be. Uh, the new craze right now is Filecoin, which is, it's not truly proof of work, but it's still getting the mining community uh, interested in, in, you know, starting to participate in that consensus. So I think the trend overall uh, is towards uh, for these altcoin projects is towards proof of stake. You just see so many more projects launching proof of stake these days. So uh, while I think that Bitcoin obviously will always remain proof of work and, and same with some of the other tokens, uh, you know, uh, some of the other large currencies like Zcash or Dash and Litecoin, but I think a lot of the new projects are, are going to go proof of stake. So 
uh, altcoin mining, I think the environment will stay pretty stable, um, uh, you know, throughout the years, I guess, depends on your take on if these altcoin projects will survive. And I guess, like, how about proof of stake? Do you, like, obviously you, you guys, Luxor are only really involved in proof of work. Like, do you have any thoughts on proof of stake in general? Um, this is obviously the Bitcoin versus Ethereum podcast and a big part of Ethereum's narrative is the benefits of moving to proof of stake. So just kind of curious about like how that all fits together in your mind. Proof of stake is interesting for sure. Um, I think it's largely untested though, at least at a grand decentralized scale like Bitcoin is. So for Bitcoin, it's just, it's battle tested. Um, I think Ethereum moving to proof of stake, if it does and, and when it does, I think will be an interesting, um, you know, testing ground for proof of stake on a big scale. So if it's successful there, then, uh, you know, it's, it gets validated as a consensus uh, mechanism for sure. So I'm looking forward to like seeing how it goes. Uh, we, we're not too opinionated on this. We've obviously built our business off proof of work because we believe in it as a consensus algorithm, but it doesn't mean that multiple can exist. So uh, we've backed a couple of projects that are hybrid, uh, like Decred uh, is, is a mix. Uh, Dash is also a mix. And so we do some staking internally where we mine and then we stake our own coins. So uh, not super against proof of stake. I just think it's untested and hopefully it gets tested within the next uh, two to three years. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes after that. I don't really think proof of stake is going to have any like material impact upon Bitcoin proof of work, but I would think that proof of stake could be like the last nail in the coffin on like new proof of work coins. You already said that there's fewer and fewer coming to market these days. And why would you, you know, risk your capital in uh, the stake equivalent of proof of work, which are these new, you know, uh, blockchain specific miners for these new proof of work coins, when you can instead allocate your capital into a proof of uh, stake network, which you know, is not non really non-committal, right? Like stake capital and stake is non-committal, but capital in, in like ASICs for a specific blockchain is totally committal. How do you feel about that? Is that like an okay analysis? And and do you think that like the, a successive proof of stake comes at the cost of the detriment of new proof of work chains? I, I agree uh, with most of that. Um, I, I do think, and we've already seen it, like most of the projects are proof of stake coming out. Uh, there's so many issues with launching a new proof of work uh, token, especially for, if it's for an existing algorithm. And in a world where we're moving from mining pools to hash exchanges, and it's way easier to start trading hash, uh, those smaller networks of proof of work are going to become very susceptible to attacks. So I think uh, if a new project does want to go to proof of work, they need to make sure that they're thinking through their algorithm correctly. They're getting ASICs on it right away. They're the largest chain on their algorithm. Because any chain that's on an algorithm where they're not the largest, so like Bitcoin Cash, BSV, those are going to be huge targets for 51% uh, attacks or other attacks on the network. So I think it's going to be harder and harder to become a proof of work chain as a, as a small chain, but there will continue to be some because there are, there's obviously very large believers in proof of work. And you saw that with like, you know, the, the Grin guys, uh, Beam, all, all the developers that came out with Nervous Handshake, like, they also believe in proof of work, so it'll continue, but it'll be hard. I kind of talked around your answer there a bit, but I agree with you, though. I, I think uh, we'll start to see a lot of these smaller projects, or at least in the start, you know, proof of stake. 
So you mentioned hash exchanges versus mining pools. Can you kind of dig into that evolution? I know this is something else that you went into depth on TFTC with Marty. Mining pools were started in 2013 uh, by Slush Pool as a way to reduce minor variance. So, you know, you, David, and I would join together our mining uh, capabilities and we'd, we'd reduce our variance in mining. We'd mine more blocks together and get paid out more consistently. Uh, it slowly evolved over the past seven years. So it moved from a system where we got paid on the actual value to the now a system where you get paid on the expected value. So mining pools, about 95% of them pay on what's called a paper share rate, where we pay miners right up front for their hash rate based on the expected value. So if your uh, expected value of your hash rate is worth 100 bucks, we'll buy it right now for, say, $98. And then we'll take it the luxury as the mining pool and earn the actual value, which will probably be zero, but in one case, it may be $100,000. Um, so that's kind of the, the transformation of the hash rate industry over the past seven years. I think right now we're at an inflection point too, again, where it's going to be moving from uh, over the next year from just strictly a mining pool to a profit switching pools. So pretty much every pool now is operating what's called a profit switching algorithm, where instead of just mining a single chain like Bitcoin, they're now mining Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, BSV, Digibyte, and profit switching between them uh, to earn the highest amount of uh, uplift for their miners. From there, it's going to start moving into exchange traded. Uh, because the simple realization that right now a profit switching algorithm is just selling hash rate to four different networks. Now they could start selling it to more people who may be willing to pay more for that hash rate than the networks. And then you're going to start to open up a new buy side uh, universe of potential buyers of hash rate. Hash rate is uh, an interesting commodity. It's ephemeral by nature and can be instantly traded uh, globally. So I could send you know, my hash rate to UCK in, in San Francisco uh, pretty much instantaneously. And so I think we'll start to see like traditional markets being built for this, which raise uh, all those other concerns about, you know, attacks on smaller networks and stuff like that. But I think it's the way the industry is, you know, it's inevitable it heads that way. I mean, let's talk about that. Like, what does this mean for chains like Bcash and uh, BSV and other alt chains uh, that share SHA-256 or uh, Equihash or any of those other kind of like universally used hashing algos. So it's really like the smaller chains on that algorithm. So something like Equihash, uh, Zcash will, will will be fine because there's so much Equihash hash rate securing it. Horizon will likely be fine because it's a lot on that too. But it's the example where you know BCH and BSV only have a few percentage of what Bitcoin does. I don't follow BCH and BSV that closely, but I think they have like a few exahash of hash rate on each of them versus Bitcoins at like 120, 125. So it's a fraction of the exahash. So you could easily be in a situation where uh, one miner can take control over 51% of either of those networks pretty easily. I think uh, you won't see that kind of attack until two things happen. Uh, one, there becomes really good markets to short the coins. So if you can go take a really big short position on BSV, that will be a huge economic incentive. And then two is like, how do you actually get the coins out if you like 51% attack? Um, there's like a lot of blacklisting that goes on. Exchanges will block you. I'm sure you could find a way. I haven't like thought it through that much, but I think as those two things happen and hash rate markets develop, you'll start to see potentially more attacks. And ultimately the loser, uh, besides the, the holders of the coin are, are the exchanges that get attacked too. So we could get into interesting game theory where an exchange gets attacked 
they lose a bunch of money, but then instantly they, they, they realize they're being attacked. They go buy a bunch of hash rate and try to reverse the attack. Um, and you get into like a hash rate war where uh, it's kind of game theory where everybody wants to up their bid because uh, you, you're never in a position where you want to get outbidded. So you'll continue to bid up the hash rate. Uh, in that case, I guess the miners win by selling the bullets. Right. So the miners actually absorb the value of the hack because both parties are willing to bid up and then and ultimately just give it to the miners. That's kind of cool. I would like to see that happen. I don't want that to happen because I don't want anyone to lose, but that would be fun to watch. Yeah, it abstracts away the idea that the value of hash rates only based on a chain versus it's based on what people are willing to pay. So maybe you can only make uh, 10 cents a terahash by mining BCH, but the exchange may be willing to pay 40 cents a terahash because uh, that hash rate is more valuable to them than simply the monetary value of mining. So it'll be fascinating to watch for sure. This somewhere that you're trying to take Luxor from being just a mining pool to uh, operating more of like a hash exchange. Yeah, I think it's ultimately a better uh, experience for miners. Uh, right now, uh, as you know, we talked about in the earlier stages of this, uh, it's kind of a black box for miners. Uh, they connect to a mining pool. They get quoted a fee on Telegram, like, oh, I'm going to charge you two and a half percent. And they can't verify that. And oftentimes they get ripped off if it's by uh, maybe a pool not in their jurisdiction that can feels like you can get away with it. I just think it's inevitable that the hash rates traded in an open marketplace, like any commodity. Really, hash rates compute power. And I think compute power is definitely going to be a commodity in the future, like post-digital age. So uh, it doesn't make sense for it not to be exchange traded like every other commodity. Yeah, it feels like it feels like just it should be on the energy markets. It's almost the same thing. Exactly. It, it It's most comparable to energy, really, electricity, except it can be globally distributed. That's the really cool part. I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating asset. So I think a lot of listeners of this show may believe that proof of work is something that's like destroying the planet and is is really wasting electricity for no good reason. Uh, can you kind of talk about your opinions about that and um, what you see Bitcoin mining and proof of work as, um, you know, as a piece in, in kind of like the the ecosystem of energy production? I'd recommend anyone to read Nick Carter's piece on it. It's, it's, I think it's called like the last word on, on Bitcoin mining energy use or something. Uh, I thought he put it much better than I can, but a few things to unpack here. First, Bitcoin mining uses a ton of energy. Uh, it's an undeniable. Uh, you can look on like Cambridge. Um, uh, they, they have an energy consumption index. It uses a ton. Um, but not, that's not necessarily a bad thing in all cases. Uh, oftentimes, this energy is being used in a way that would have otherwise been wasted. So there's, there's plenty of examples. And we could probably you know, have another one on this, another podcast on this. But examples where it's actually beneficial to uh, different energy infrastructure systems. So Steve Barber at Upstream Data, uh, we talked about him earlier. He's leveraging flared gas uh, to mine. Basically, uh, oil wells produce some excess gas when they pump oil out. And right now, it's not enough oil to get to market or justify building a pipeline to. So they often just build uh, a flaring uh, system where they burn it up into the atmosphere, which is pretty bad for the environment. So instead, uh, people like Steve or Crusoe or Great America Mining they're leveraging uh, mining operations to now turn that into Bitcoin and secure the network. 
Um, there's other examples of people using um, Bitcoin mining as a way to stabilize electricity grids. So there's all this surplus electricity that's um, generated from uh, so, like renewable energy, like wind or solar. Uh, it's very unstable. So at times in the day, there's way too much energy. And then at times there's too little. And so Bitcoin mining, it really acts as a nice stabilizer where uh, it can soak up that extra energy and, and help uh, those electricity grids actually become more profitable, which will speed up the development of renewable energy. So there, there's just so many complexities and it's not completely black and white here. There's a lot of examples of good. There's also examples of bad. I mean, a lot of places in Kazakhstan are just burning coal to mine Bitcoin. And uh, do I think that's great for the environment? No. And I, I think it, you know, climate change is an important thing that we should be considering. So as much as we can, let's support the initiatives that are um, helping the energy infrastructures rather than just purely polluting. But I think we're heading in a really good direction here, especially with uh, hash rate coming to North America. So I think it's a, a problem, but it's uh, a problem we can fix and a problem that's worth fixing too. What we're building here is a, a censorship resistant money. That's a huge thing, right? It's not like we're just building some random thing that's taking all this energy. We're building the, the future, like decentralized finance and the potential it's going to unlock is crazy. So I'm happy to you know support it and work towards a solution uh, as we build it. Can you comment on what if the large amount of energy consumption from the Bitcoin mining uh, ecosystem what that does towards the overall trending of uh, my of energy production at large, right? Uh, so the the optimist in me is thinks that because there's so much demand for energy, that this hastens the arrival of green renewable energy sources. Is that like a valid uh, thing? And can you comment on like what because of all this excess, uh, this massive amounts of demand that the world has because of Bitcoin for energy, what that what that does to the to the world's you know macro uh, energy consumption? I think you're right. Like it's going to usher in a new era of uh, renewable energy development. And like one thing is just saying this on this podcast or like posting on Twitter, uh, you know, some catchy title. But I'm flying to Alberta tomorrow, which is uh, like. Canada's version of Texas, uh, they have increasingly growing wind farms and solar farms. This is an area the government's very curious about uh, learning about Bitcoin mining. So uh, I think that uh, it's not just like us talking about it. It's actually happening real time where uh, Bitcoin mining is being used by uh, energy companies, especially in the renewable energy space to improve their existing systems. If we can increase the profitability of a wind farm or a solar plant by allowing them to uh, sell or mine Bitcoin at a higher price than they could get by selling it to the grid. Oftentimes, they have to give away at negative prices. Um, that's going to speed up their development. It's going to mean more profits for them. Uh, it's going to look more attractive to the government to continue to subsidize because uh, they're making progress. So I think in so many ways, uh, Bitcoin mining will help uh, You know the energy infrastructure systems. Awesome. Ethan, thanks so much for coming on, man. Uh, this was a ton and ton of information, and I'm sure our listeners found this uh, super valuable. I know I did in particular. Um, Ethan, where can people find you? Who do you want to hear from? You can find me on Twitter, uh, Ethan underscore Vera, and feel free to ping me there, uh, especially if it's around uh, hash rate index, uh, the new data site. So we just want as much feedback as possible, build some cool shit for miners uh, and people interested in the space. So if you have any uh, feedback on what would be cool to see, uh, you know, hit us up and, and let us know. 
Fantastic. Ethan, thanks for coming on. You guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? Yep. And then you guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks, as well as at Bitcoin Magazine. Make sure to give us those five-star review, guys. Um, and yeah, hey, Bitcoin and Ethereum to the moon, baby. Let's go. Absolutely. Let the ball run. And Yiffy. And Yiffy token. Not yet. <laughs> oh, it's going there. <laughs> All right, Ethan, that was fantastic. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Will you just see-